2: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 233. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy on this special day. Yes, 233. This is the first show back after being nominated again for a Hugo Award. How cool is that? Oh, the old girl. Three times we've been nominated for a Hugo Award. Wow, that's excellent. I just want to take a little second or two of your time just to thank everybody that's, you know, helped with Starship over and listened to Starship over You know, it's just as important that you're kind of there listening. You know what I mean? It's like... The emails you get, you know, and I've been getting emails, like I say, we started in 2006, and just knowing people's out there and just listening to what we do, you know, it's just fantastic, and I just so appreciate it, and I honestly kind of, I don't know if I've got words to describe how much I appreciate who's, you know, people is helping out on the show, do you know? And like I say, helping out for a long time, do you know, as, as long as I've been doing Starship so far, there's been people helping out, you know, thank you so much. But I'm just so pleased, you know what I mean, it's just kind of, I don't know, it's, it's hard to, to, be quite honest, it's hard to even describe how, how good I'm feeling, but I'm feeling very good, you know what I mean? And it's in this new fan cast category. Well, you remember all like the hoo-ha when we first kicked off in 2010, when, you know, we we, we, we snagged the Hugo Award. There was, oh, bloody Lords just complaining that. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fanzine. Just, you know what I mean? Let, let them twist on, to be quite honest, but... They've now, you know, powers to be on the Hugo War Committee have decided, or a one-off special, a fan cast. Now, I quite like it. You know, I'm, you know, because it can't be bothered with all the kind of hassle and everything like that. But I really like this, what they've got, you know, this kind of, they've now decided, which is, like I say, a once, you know, apparently a once-only fan cast category. And, but it'll get voted again, I think, in like a business meeting the Hugos have. So it might stay around. And like I say, I'm, Actually, this is quite nice, you know, because the people that I'm in there with I kind of recognize and I know and are good friends, and it just seems a nice little category. And we've got the Coolie Street Podcast by Jonathan Stran and Gary K. Wolf there in there. The Galactic Suburbia Podcast. SF Signal Podcast and SF Squeecast Podcast as well. So Congratulations to, to all them. Just I know, you know, how much I'm feeling there. Like see I've been there three three years there now nominated. It just doesn't get any better feeling. But, you know, for the likes of well, for all of them, it's just as simple as that. It's just you know, they, they must be on such a high. And like I say, from Starship so far, you know, congratulations to all the podcasts out there that are in this, you know, up for a nomination ward. It's just it would have been just lovely to kind of if we could have all in the, in the real world, you know, getting together and just, you know, shared, shared a drink, you know, lift a little toast and say congratulations to all of us, you know, it's a fabulous time. And I'm just so pleased that I'm in there with some fantastic company. You know, those just seem right to sit next to Starship Sofa, whether, you know, other people agree or not. But I'm, you know, hey, hey to be quite honest, I'm just thankful. For, you know, it's nice just to get recognised again. So anyone that's kind of put in a little vote for Starship Sofa, you know what I mean? Thank you so much. It's lovely. So I'll put a link on if you haven't. I mean, it's kind of been all over the news and everywhere like that. But there's a link on to so you can see who's in for you know best short story and best novels. Actually, I'll I'll, I'll pellet. You know why not? Why not? I'll read out best novels among others: Joe Walton, A Dance with Dragons, George R R. Martin, Deadline, Mariah Grant, Embassy Town, China Merville, Leviathan Wakes by James S E. Corey. So, you know, that's the kind of one that it's the big, the big one. But, you know, there's loads of little ones as well going down there. And I've been with the short stories and the novellas and the novelettes, so you know, try to you know, get, get a, get a snack a couple there so I can play on the show as well. So listen out for more, you know, like these Hugo nominated stories. So what else is coming in today's show? Well, we have looking back at genre history with our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Main fiction is Gwyneth Jones, the Vicar of Mars. Then we have a fact article again, movie soundtracks by David Raiklin. Then we have first chapters by our very own Jeff Lane, his book, his ebook, there, One Way. I'll give a little description about that, you know, a little bit later on the show. And actually, we've got the first chapter, about 10, 11 minutes of it. So hopefully you'll like it, you know what I mean? And it's here, it's time travel. So come on, you know what I mean? Jeff's wrote a cracking novel here as well. So please have a listen out for that. So we'll kick off with, I like I say, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Amy!
4: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is time to join me for another look back into genre history. Today, I would like to offer a tribute to one of the great science fiction authors of our time. His young adult science fiction introduced many young readers... To the genre and served as a gateway drug that made them, in fact, lifelong science fiction fans. His adult science fiction caused many people to think about, perhaps for the first time, how our world could go wrong. His name was Sam Yude, and he died at the age of 89 on the 3rd of February 2012. Throughout his life... His friends called him Sam, but you perhaps know him better as John Christopher. Christopher was born in Lancashire, in England, was educated at Peter Simmons School in Hampshire, and as a young man, he was involved in science fiction fandom. Then World War II came, and he served in the Royal Corps of Signals between 1941 and 1946. After the war, a scholarship from the Rockefeller Foundation made it possible for him to try his hand at fiction writing. He'd already been bitten by the bug, as it were. His poem, Dreamer, was published in Weird Tales in March 1941 under the name C.S. Ud. His first work of science fiction was the story Christmas Tree, which was published in Astounding in February 1949, and that was credited to Christopher Ud. In 1949, he published his first novel, which was a fantasy novel, called The Winter Swan, and again he went by Christopher Ud. He would end up using a lot of different pen names during his life, including Stanley Winchester, Hillary Ford, William Godfrey, William Vine, Peter Graff, Peter Nichols, and Anthony Rye. But he would eventually stick with John Christopher for most of his science fiction works. In 1954, as John Christopher, he published The 22nd Century, which was a collection of his early science fiction short stories. The following year, his first science fiction novel, The Year of the Comet, was published. But it was his second novel in 1956, The Death of Grass in the UK, published as No Blade of Grass in the U.S., that really garnered international attention. This was a post-apocalyptic novel um, about a virus that kills off all forms of grass, This has terrible ripple effects that might not immediately be obvious, and because of this, the characters end up on a cross-country journey in England, and they discover that they have to sacrifice some of their morals in order to stay alive. The film version uh, was produced by Cornell Wilde and released in 1970. It's also been adapted as a drama for BBC Radio 4 in 2009 and released in five episodes. A series of post-apocalyptic novels followed. And in a way, John Christopher became sort of the contrast to John Wyndham. John Wyndham, another British author, was known for books such as Day of the Triffids, books that came to be known as cozy catastrophes. These suggested that the middle-class values of the characters would put them in pretty good stead to weather uh, dramatic catastrophes of one kind or another— and so despite the fact the world goes very wrong very quickly, there is a buoyant sense of steadfast purpose and hope in Wyndham's work. Contrasted with that, um, Christopher's characters um, really have a much more difficult time with things, and they discover that they really can't be who they thought they were and still come out of these disasters at the other end alive. A lot of these darker, grittier stories dealt with either environmental or political complacency, suggesting that if we ignored the problems around us, they would really come around to bite us in the end. Some of these post-apocalyptic science fiction novels by John Christopher at the time were The World in Winter, also published as The Long Winter in 1962. A Wrinkle in the Skin, also published as The Ragged Edge, in 1965, and Pendulum, in 1968. Of all of these, I think The Death of Grass is the one best remembered. It is uh, still read, still taught, and still relevant today. Now, if these had been the only works that Christopher produced it would be fitting for us to recognize his passing and celebrate his legacy in science fiction. But in fact, in retrospect, these works feel more like a prelude to the main career John Christopher had, and that was in young adult science fiction or adolescent science fiction. In this field, he was incredibly prolific and incredibly popular, He wrote works such as The Guardians in 1970, which painted a dystopian portrait of Britain and won the Guardian Award for Best Children's Book of the Year. There were other books such as Wild Jack in 1974, The Fireball Trilogy, which consisted of Fireball in 1981, Newfoundland in 1983, and Dragon Dance in 1986, which is set in a parallel world version of Roman Britain and other places, as the youngsters, the the young protagonists, essentially field test different political systems. There was Empty World in 1977, and The Prince-in-Waiting sequence, which included The Prince-in-Waiting in 1970, Beyond the Burning Lands in 1971, and The Sword of Spirits in 1972. This was put together in 1980 as The Sword of the Spirits Trilogy, or The Prince-in-Waiting Trilogy. For a long time, reading this trilogy, it seems like you're reading sort of um, a medievalized fantasy version of England, But actually, you find out that this is a ruined Earth scenario, and that the people who look like magicians are actually scientists who have survived in hiding for a very long time. Really interesting twist. A Dusk of Demons in 1993 takes place in a haunted Scotland. One of the themes that occurs over and over again in these young adult science fiction works um, besides the idea of a disaster changing Earth forever, giving a sort of post-apocalyptic feel to the stories, is the idea of a young individual pitted against a society that wants to make him or her conform, um, that wants to take away free choice and uh, brainwash the protagonist. So it's a struggle not only for coming of age, but of retaining uh, the young person's individuality. Christopher is, however, best, best, best remembered as the author of The Tripod's Tetralogy. This includes The White Mountains, first published in 1967, The City of Golden Lead, also 67, The Pool of Fire in 1968, and the prequel When the Tripods Came in 1988. I know personally from speaking to a number of science fiction enthusiasts at conventions and conferences and in the classroom that the Tripod series has left its mark by turning a number of young readers into science fiction fans for life. This dystopian series tells the story of a futuristic Earth that is ruled by alien conquerors, known as the Masters, and they travel around in gigantic three-legged walking machines that are very reminiscent of the alien vessels in H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Humanity, which has been enslaved by these aliens, lives in a kind of strange, faux-medieval, agricultural life in the countryside, although there are still leftover remnants of modernity that exist. So there's a, a nice, jarring blend of the futuristic and the historical, sort of right on top of each other. At the age of 14, the aliens use implants called caps on the humans, and these caps suppress curiosity and imagination, and the recipients then become pretty much docile sheep that are incapable of fighting back. A few people are unable to really take to the capping. Their minds are broken, and they end up wandering the countryside in a ghastly sort of lobotomized stupor. Fortunately for humanity, several heroic young protagonists avoid the capping and end up saving the planet. The series has its moments of real horror as well as adventure, but it ends up being quite an inspiring and empowering story. The series came to television thanks to the BBC in the UK and the Seven Network in Australia, the adaptation of The Tripods was 13 half-hour episodes long and broadcast in 1984. The City of Gold and Lead came to television the next year in 12 episodes. These were released on DVD in 2009. Furthermore, Boy's Life, which is the magazine of the Boy Scouts of America, adapted the first three books from May 1981 to August 1986 as a serialized comics feature. As of the time of this recording, the Internet Movie Database lists a new film version of The Tripods as being currently in production. Today, with the success of works like The Hunger Games, bringing the spotlight to the tradition of young adult dystopian fiction. Scholars and librarians and enthusiasts are looking once again at the tripods as one of the great stars in that constellation. And, of course, post-apocalyptic fiction is alive and well. It's worth noting that in his survey of science fiction, Three Tomorrows, American, British, and Soviet science fiction, John Griffiths names The Death of Grass as the definitive novel in the post-apocalyptic subgenre. And so with this, I salute John Christopher, Sam Ude. Celebrate his long life and his many works and his contribution to science fiction. He may be gone, but he is most certainly not forgotten. I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you.
2: James. I thank you so much. So main fiction and it is The Vicar of Mars by Gwyneth Jones. This came out in Eclipse 4, which is Jonathan Strand's this new science fiction and the fantasy. And if you do take out one of those kind of Hugo or you know, you, you've got your membership for the Hugo Awards or you can get a supporting membership, you get like a digital format of a lot of the books. And I think Jonathan's putting in that full book, one of the stories in there, which is. Rachel Swarski's Fields of Gold. Johnson's just putting the whole book in there as well, so you get the whole book. So how cool is that? So if you, you know, if you still want to do, you know, a supporting role, I think it's fifty dollars there, and you get like everything basically. Do you know what I mean? So that's quite cool as well. But this story came from there. Others well, in there. You've got a, a one by Andy Duncan, Caitlin R. Kieran, Damien Broderick, Kiz Johnson. Michael Swanick, Nilo Hopkins, Rachel see, like Eileen Gunn, Jeffrey Ford, Emma Bull, Pete I.M. Ball, Joe Walton, and James Patrick Kelly. This story was also picked up by the year's best science fiction Twenty Nine annual collection by Gardner Does Was. We've played a couple of stories, and I've got a couple more stories by Gwyneth Jones. She was born in Manchester. 1952 she's the author of over 20 novels for teenagers mostly using Anne Harlem name and several several highly regarded SF novels she's won two world fantasy awards an Arthur C. Clarke award British Science Fiction Association short story award the Dracula Society's Children of the Night award the Philip K. Dick award and she shared uh, first place with the the Tiptree award with Eleanor Arnson she says she's done some extreme tourism in her time, still likes travelling, but has given up the air transport. She likes going to the movies and playing with her website. She's a member of the Sussex Wildlife Trust and Amnesty International volunteer. You know, years ago, I went down to Milton Keynes for an Amnesty International like, music festival and I seen the Ramones live. How cool is that? This is when they were all still, you know, still alive. <laughs> the story is narrated by Goldine Ogawa. She says she got her start in acting at the age of two on a park bench in Palo Alto, California, performing for her aunts. And she was told many, many times what a talented actress she would make. But upon finding all the good parts belonged to men, she decided to forego acting in favour of writing stories with decent parts for women. The project is currently ongoing, and she now devotes most of her time to writing fantasy and science fiction stories, and indulges her thespian tendencies by reading aloud her from a podcast. Radio Grimbald. Goldine says she's very excited to be on board the Sova as a fun change from reading stories written by someone else. Goldine found a lovely narration. Do you know what I mean? Just fell in love with your voice. Excellent. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present
0: the Vicar of Mars. By Gwyneth Jones, read for you by Goldine Ogawa. The Reverend Boaz Hanahan, High Priest of the Mighty Void, and a young Aleutian adventurer going by the name of Conrad, were the only resident guests at the Old Station Butterscotch. They'd met on the way from Opportunity, and had taken to spending their evenings together, enjoying a snifter or two of Boaz's excellent twin-planets blend in a cosy private lounge. They were an odd couple. The massive Shet, his grey hide forming ponderous, dignified folds across his skull and over his brow, and the stripling immortal, slick strands of head hair to his shoulders, black eyes dancing with mischief on either side of the dark space of his nasal... But the Aleutian, though he had never lived to be old, he wasn't the type, had amassed a fund of fascinating knowledge in his many lives, and Boz was an elderly priest with varied interests and a youthful outlook. Butterscotch's hundred or so actual citizens didn't frequent the old station— The usual customers were mining lookers who drove in from the desert in the trucks that were their homes and could be heard carousing, mildly, in the public bar. Boaz and Conrad shared a glance, agreeing not to join the fun tonight. The natives were friendly enough, but Martian settlers were, almost exclusively, humans who had never left conventional space. The miners had met few aliens and believed the Buonarati Interstellar Transit was a dangerous novelty that would never catch on. One got tired of the barrage of an easy fascination. I'm afraid I scare the children, rumbled Boaz. The illusion could have passed for a noseless, slope-shouldered human. The Shet was hairless and impressively bulky, but what really made him different was his delicates. To Boas, it was natural that he possessed two sets of fingers, one set thick and horny for pounding and mashing, the other slender and supple for fine manipulation. Normally protected by his wrist folds, his delicates would shoot out to grasp a stylus, for instance, or handle eating implements. He had seen the young folks startle at this and recoil with bulging eyes. Stop calling them children suggested conrad they don't like it i don't think that can be it the young always take the physical labor and service jobs it's a fact of nature i'm only speaking english conrad shrugged for a while each of them studied his own screen as the saying goes a comfortable silence prevailed Boaz reviewed a list of deserving cases sent to him by the Colonial Social Services in Opportunity. He was not impressed. they had simply compiled a list of odds and ends, random persons who didn't fit in and were vaguely thought to have problems. To his annoyance, one of the needy appeared to live in Butterscotch. "'Here's a woman who has been suspected of being insane,' he grumbled aloud. "'Has she been treated?' "'Apparently not.' "'How about Beric? "'Has visited Speranza? "'No known religion? "'What's the use in telling me that?' "'Maybe they think you'd like to convert her,' "'suggested Conrad. "'I do not convert people!' "'exclaimed Boaz, shocked. "'Should an unbelieving parishioner "'wish my guidance toward the abyss, they let me know. "'It's not my business to persuade them.' I have entered my name alongside other ministers of religion on Mars. If my services as a priest should be required at a birth, adulthood, conjunction, or death, I shall be happy to oblige. And that is enough. Conrad laughed soundlessly, the way Aleutians do. You don't bother your flock, and they don't bother you. That sounds like an easy birth. Not always, thought the old priest ruefully. Sometimes not easy at all. I wouldn't worry about it, Boaz. Mars is a colony. It's run by the planetary government of Earth, and they're obsessed with gathering information about innocent strangers. When they can't find anything interesting, they make it up. The file they keep on me is vast. I've seen it. Earth, powerful neighbor to the red planet, was the local name for the world everyone else in the diaspora. "'knew as the blue. "'Boaz was here to minister to souls. "'Conrad was here, he claimed, purely a tourist. "'The fat file the humans kept might suggest a different story, "'but Boaz had no intention of prying. "'Aleutians, the elder race, had their own religion, or lack of one. "'As long as he showed no sign of suffering, "'Conrad's sins were his own business.' The old shirt cracked a snifter vial, tucked it in his holder, inhaled deeply, and returned to the eyeball screen that was visible to his eyes alone. The curious social services file on Jewel, Isabel, reappeared. All very odd. Careful of misunderstandings, he opened his dictionary and checked in detail the meanings of English words he knew perfectly well. Wicked old woman. Insane. Later, on his way to bed, he examined one of the fine rock formations that decorated the station's courtyards. They promised good hunting. The mining around here was of no great worth, ferrous ores for the domestic market, but Boaz was not interested in commercial value. He collected mineral curiosities. It was his passion, and one very good reason for visiting Butterscotch, right on the edge of the most ancient and interesting Martian terrain. If truth be known, Boaz looked on this far-flung vicarate as an interesting prelude to his well-earned retirement. He did not expect his duties to be burdensome, but he was a conscientious person, and Conrad's teasing had stung. "'I shall visit her,' he announced to the sharp-shadowed rocks." The High Priest had travelled from his home world to Speranza, capital city of the Diaspora, and onward to the blue planet Taurus port in no time at all, allowing for a few hours of waiting around and to false-duration interludes of virtual entertainment. The months he'd spent aboard the conventional space liner, Burroughs, completing his interplanetary journey, had been slow but agreeable. He'd arrived to find his residence, dispatched by license courier, had been delayed and decided that until his home was decoded into material form, he might as well carry on traveling. His tour of this backward but extensive new parish happened to concentrate on prime mineral hunting sites, but he would not neglect his obligations. He took a robotic jitney as far as the network extended and proceeded on foot. Jewel... Isabel lived out of town, up against the enclosure "'that kept tolerable climate and air quality captive. "'As yet unscrubbed emissions lingered here in drifts of vapor, "'the thin air had a lifeless, paradoxical warmth. "'Spindly towers of mine tailings, known as Martian stromatolites, "'stood in groups, heads together like ugly sentinels. "'Small mining machines crept about, munching mineral-rich dirt. "'There was no other movement.' no sound but the crepitation of a million tiny ceramic teeth nothing lived the martians were very proud of their quarantine they farmed their food in strict confinement they tortured off-world travelers with lengthy decontamination even the gastropod machines were not allowed to reproduce they were turned out in batches by the mine factories and recycled in the refineries when they were full "'What were the humans trying to preserve, the racial purity of rocks and sand?' "'Absurd superstition,' muttered the old priest into his breather. "'Life is life.' Jewel Isabel clearly valued her privacy. He hadn't messaged her in advance. His visit would be off the record, and if she turned him away from her door, so be it.' He could see the isolated module now, at the end of a chance avenue of teetering stromatolites. He reviewed the file's main points as he stumped along. Old, well-traveled, for a human of her caste, reputed to be rich. No social contacts in Butterscotch, no data traffic with any other location. Supplied by special delivery at her own expense. Came to Mars around a local year ago on a settler's one-way ticket. "'Boas thought that must be very unusual. "'Martian settlers sometimes retired to their home planet "'if they could afford the medical bills. "'Why would a fragile elderly person make the opposite trip, "'apparently not planning to return?' "'The dwelling loomed up suddenly right in front of him. "'He had a moment of selfish doubt. "'Was he committing himself to an endless round "'of visiting random misfits? "'Maybe he should quietly go away again.' but his approach had been observed. A transparent pane had opened. A face glimmered, looking out through the inner and the outer skin, as if from deep, starless space. "'Who are you?' demanded a harsh voice, cracked with disuse. "'Are you real? Can you hear me? You're not human.' "'I hear you. I'm, uh, wired for sound. I am not a human.' I am a Shette, a priest of the void newly arrived, just making myself known. May I come in? He half hoped she would say no. Go away. I don't like priests. Can't you see I want to be left alone? But the lock opened. He passed through, divested himself of the breather and his outer garments, and entered the pressurized chamber. The room was large by Martian living standards. Bulkheads must have been removed. Probably this had once been a three- or four-person unit, but it felt crowded. He recognized the furniture of earth, not extruded like the similar fittings in the old station, but freestanding, many of the pieces carved from precious woods. Chairs were ranged in a row along one curved red wall. Against another stood a tall armoire, a desk with many drawers, and several canvas pictures in frames, stacked "'facing the dark. "'In the midst of the room were two more chairs drawn up "'beside a plain ceramic stove, which provided the only lighting. "'A richly-patterned rug lay on the floor. "'He couldn't imagine what it had cost to ship all this, "'through conventional space, in material form. "'She must indeed be wealthy.' "'The light was low, the shadows numerous. "'I see you are a chet," said Jewel Isabel, "'I won't offer you a chair. "'I have none that would take your weight. "'But please be seated.' "'She indicated the rug, and Boaz reclined with care. "'The number of valuable alien objects made him feel he was sure to break something. "'The human woman resumed, presumably, her habitual seat. "'She was tall for a human and very thin.' A black gown with loose skirts covered her whole body, closely fastened and decorated with flourishes of creamy stuff, like textile foam at the neck and wrists. The marks of human aging were visible in her wrinkled face, her white head hair, and the sunken, overlarge sockets of her pale eyes. But signs of age can be deceptive. Boaz also saw something universal, something any priest often has to deal with, yet Familiarity never breeds contempt. Jewel Isabel inclined her head. She had read his silent judgment. You seem to be a doctor as well as a priest, she said in a tone that rejected sympathy. My health is as you have guessed. Let's change the subject. She asked him how he liked butterscotch and how Mars compared with Shet, "'Bland questions, separated by little, unexplained pauses. "'Boaz spoke of his mineral-hunting plans and the pleasures of travel. "'He was oddly disturbed by his sense that the room was crowded. "'He wanted to look behind him, "'to be sure there were no occupants in that row of splendid chairs. "'But he was too old to turn without a visible effort, "'and he didn't wish to be rude.' When he remarked that Isabel's home-she had put him right in the order of her name-was rather isolated, she smiled, a weary stretching of the lips. Oh, you'd be surprised. I'm not short of company. You have your memories. Isabel stared over his shoulder. Or oh, they have me. He did not feel that he'd gained her confidence, but before he left, they'd agreed he would visit again. She was most particular about the appointment. "'In ten days' time,' she said, "'in the evening, at the full moon.
4: "'Be
0: sure you remember.' As he returned to the waiting jitney, the vaporous outskirts of Butterscotch seemed less forbidding. He had done right to come, "'and thank goodness Conrad had teased him "'or the poor woman might have been left "'without the comfort of the void. "'Undoubtedly he was needed, "'and he would do his best.' "'His satisfaction was still with him "'when the Jitney delivered him "'inside the old station compound. "'He even tried a joke on one of the human children "'about those decorative rock formations. "'Did they walk in from the desert "'one fine night in search of alcoholic beverages?' "'The youngster took offense. "'They were here when the station was installed. It was all desert then. "'If there was walking rocks on Mars, Messer!' "'The child drew herself up to her frail, puny height and glared at him. "'We wouldn't any of us be here. "'We'd go home straight away and leave Mars to the creatures that belongs to this planet.' "'Boaz strode off, a chuckle rumbling in his throat. "'Kids!' But when he had eaten, in decent privacy, as a respectable Shet, he would never get used to eating in public, he decided to forego Conrad's company. The old mad woman was too much on his mind, and he found that he shuddered away from the idea of that second visit. Yet he'd met Isabel's trouble many times, and never been frightened before. I'm getting old, thought the high priest. He turned in early. But he couldn't sleep, plagued by a formless feeling that he had done something foolish and he would have to pay for it. There were wild, dangerous creatures trying to get into his room, groping at the mellow, pockmarked outer skin of the old station, searching for a weak place. Rousing from an uneasy doze, he was compelled to get up and make a transparency, although, as he knew perfectly well, his room faced an inner courtyard— and there are no wild creatures on Mars. Nothing stirred. Several rugged, decorative rocks were grouped right in front of him, oddly menacing under the security lights. Had they always stood there? He thought not, but he couldn't be sure. The brutes crouched, blind and secretive, waiting for him to lie down again. I really am getting old, muttered Boaz. I must take something for it he slept and found himself once more in the human woman's module isabel seemed younger and far more animated confusion fogged his mind embarrassing him he didn't know how he'd arrived here or what they'd been talking about he was advising her to move into town it wasn't safe to live so close to the ancient desert she was not welcome here She laughed and bared her arm, crying, "'I am welcome nowhere!' He saw a mutilation, a string of marks etched into her thin human skin. She thrust the symbols at him. He protested that he had no idea what they meant, but she hardly seemed to care. She was waiting for another visitor, the visitor she had been expecting when he arrived the first time. She had let him in by mistake. He must leave. "'They are from another dimension!' She cried in that hoarse, hopeless voice. They wait at the gate, meaning to devour. They lived with me once. They may return with a tiny shift of the many dimensions of the void. It gave him a shock when she used the terms of his religion. Was she drawn to the abyss? Had he begun to give her instruction? The fog in his mind was very distressing. How could he have forgotten something like that? Then he recalled, with intense relief, that she had been to Speranza. She was no stranger to the interstellar world. She must have learnt something of Shet Belief. But relief was swamped in a wave of dread. Isabel was looking over his shoulder. He turned, awkward and stiff with age. A presence was taking shape in one of the chairs. It was big as a bear, bigger than Boaz himself— squirming tentacles of glistening flesh reached out, becoming every instant more solid and defined. If it became fully real, if it touched him, he would die of horror. Boaz woke, thunder in his skull, his whole body pulsing, the blood thickened and backing up in all his veins. Dizzy and sick, on the edge of total panic, he groped for his first aid kit he fumbled the mask over his mouth and nostril slits with trembling delicates that would hardly obey him and drew in great gulps of oxygen. Unthinkable horrors flowed away. The pressure in his skull diminished. He dropped onto his side, making the sturdy extruded couch groan, clutching the mask. It was a dream, he told himself. Just a dream. Rationally, he knew he had simply done too much. Overexertion in the thin air of the outskirts had given him nightmares. He must give his acclimatization treatment more time to become established. He took things easy for the next few days, pottering around in the mining fields just outside the enclosure, in full Martian EVA gear, with a young staff member for a guide. Pickings were slim, butterscotch was in the guidebook, but he made a few pleasing finds. But the nightmare stayed with him, and at intervals he had to fight the rooted conviction that it had been real. He had already made a second visit. There had been something terrible, unspeakable. His nights continued to be disturbed. He had unpleasant dreams, never the same as the first, from which he woke in panic, groping for the oxygen that no longer gave much relief. He was also troubled by a change in the behavior of the hotel staff. They had been friendly, and unlike the miners, they never whispered or stared. Now the children avoided him, and he was no genius at reading human moods, but he was sure there was something wrong. Anu, the lad who took Boaz out into the desert, kept his distance as far as possible and barely spoke. Perhaps the child was disturbed by the habit of looking behind him that Boaz had developed. It must look strange, since he was old and it was difficult, but he couldn't help himself. One morning, when he went to make his usual guilty inspection of that inner courtyard, the station's manager was there, staring at a section of wall where strange marks had appeared, blistered wheels like raw flesh wounds in the ceramic skin. "'Do you know what's causing that effect?' asked Boaz. "'Can't be weathering. Not in here. Bugs in the ceramic. I'll have to get it reconfigured. Can't understand it. It's supposed to last forever, that stuff.' "'But the station is very old, isn't it? Older than Butterscotch itself. "'You don't think the pretty rocks in here had anything to do with the damage?' Boaz tried a rumble of laughter. You know, child, sometimes I think they move around at night. The rock group was nowhere near the walls. It never was, by daylight. I am twenty years old, said the Martian with an odd look. Old enough to know when to stay away from bad luck, Monsieur. Excuse me. He hurried away, leaving Boaz very puzzled and uneasy. He had come here to collect minerals. Therefore, he would collect minerals. What he needed was an adventure to clear his head. It would be foolhardy to brave the empty quarter of Mars in the company of a frightened child, perhaps equally foolhardy to set out alone. He decided he would offer to go exploring with the Aleutian, who took a well-equipped station buggy out into the wild red yonder almost every day. Conrad would surely welcome this suggestion." Conrad was reluctant. He spoke so warmly of the dangers and with such concern for the Shet's age and unsuitable metabolism that Boaz's pride was touched. He was old, but he was strong. The nerve of this stripling, suggesting there were phenomena on Mars that an adult male Shet couldn't handle, even if the stripling was a highly experienced young immortal. I see you prefer to go solo. I would hate to disturb your privacy. We must compare routes so that our paths do not cross. The virtual tour is very, very good, said the Aleutian. You can easily and safely explore the ancient Arabia Terra with a fully customized avatar from the comfort of your hotel room. Stop talking like a guidebook, rumbled Boaz. I have survived in tougher spots than this. I shall make my arrangements with the station today. You won't mind me mentioning that all the sentient biped peoples of Shet are basically aquatic? Not since our oceans shrank, about two million standard years ago. I am not an Aleutian, I have no memory of those days. And if I were basically aquatic, that would mean I am already an expert at living outside my natural element. Oh well, said Conrad at last, ungraciously, If you're determined, I suppose, it's safer if I keep you where I can see you. The notable features of the ancient uplands were to the north, luckily the opposite direction from Isabel's door location. The two buggies set out at sunrise, locked in tandem, Conrad in the lead. As they passed through the particulate barrier of the enclosure, Boaz felt a welcome stirring of excitement. His outside cams still showed quiet mining fields, ever-present stromatolites, but already the landscape was becoming more rugged. He felt released from bondage. A few refreshing trips like this and he would no longer be haunted. He would no longer be compelled to turn, feeling those ornate chairs lined up behind him, knowing that the repulsive creature of his dream was taking shape. "'It's a dusty one,' remarked Conrad over the intercom." "'often is, around here in the northern summer, and there's a storm warning. "'We shouldn't go far. "'Just a loop around the first buttes, a short EVA and home again.'" Boaz recovered himself with a chuckle. His cam showed a calm sky, healthily tinged with blue. His exterior monitors were recording the friendliest conditions known to Mars. "'I'm getting hazardous storm probability at near zero. he rumbled in reply. "'Uncouple and return, if you wish. "'I shall make a day of it.'" Silence. Boaz felt that he'd won the battle. Conrad had let slip a few too many knowledgeable comments about Martian mineralogy in their friendly chats. Of course, he wasn't purely a tourist. He was a rockhound himself. He'd been scouring the wilds for sites the guidebook and the colonial government mineral survey had missed or undervalued. Obviously, he'd found something good— and he didn't want to share. Boaz sympathized wholeheartedly, but a little teasing wouldn't come amiss as a reward for being so untrusting and secretive. The locked buggies dropped into layered craters, climbed gritty steps. Boaz buried himself in strange-sounding English-language wish lists compiled long ago in preparation for this trip. Hematite nodules, volcanic olivines, exotic basalts, moss-bower patterns... Tectites, barite roses. But whatever he carried back from the red planet, across such a staggering distance, would be treasure, bound to fill his fellow hounds at home with delight and envy. Behind him, the empty chairs were ranged in judgment. That which waits at the gates was taking form. Boaz needed to look over his shoulder, but he did not turn. He knew he couldn't move quickly enough and only the sleek desert survival fittings of the buggy would mock him. Escaping from the ugly reverie, he noticed that Conrad was deviating freely from their pre-logged route. Most unsafe, but Boaz didn't protest. There was no need for concern. They had life support and desert rescue service beacons that couldn't be disabled. He examined his CGMS maps instead. There was nothing marked that would explain Conrad's diversion. How interesting! What if the Aleutians' find was significantly anomalous, or commercially valuable? If so, they were legally bound to leave it untouched, beacon it, and report it. But I shan't pry, thought Boaz. He maintained intercom silence, as did Conrad, until at last the locked buggies halted. The drivers disembarked. The Aleutian, with typical bravado, was dressed as if he'd been optimized before birth for life on Mars, the most lightweight air supply, a minimal squeeze suit under his Aleutian-style desert thermals. Boaz removed his helmet. "'I hope you enjoyed the scenic route,' said Conrad, with a strange glint in his eye. "'I hate to be nannied, don't you? We are not children.' "'Hmm.' I found your navigation enlightening. The Aleutian seemed to be thinking hard about his next move. So you want to stop here, my friend? Asked Boaz airily. Good. I suggest we go our separate ways. Rendezvous later for the return journey? That would be fine, said Conrad. I'll call you. Boaz rode his buggy around an exquisite tholeitic basalt group, a little too big to pack. He disembarked, took a chipping, and analyzed it. The spectrometer results were unremarkable. The sum is greater than the parts. Often the elemental makeup, the age, and even the extreme conditions of its creation can give no hint as to why a rock is beautiful. His customized suit was supple. He felt easier in it than he did in his own aging hide, and youthfully weightless. "'without the discomforting loss of control of weightlessness itself. "'Not far away he could see a glittering pool, "'like a mirage of surface water "'that might mark a field of broken geodes "'or a surface deposit of rare spherulites. "'But he wanted to know what the illusion had found. "'He wanted to know so badly "'that in the end he succumbed to temptation, "'got back in the buggy, "'and returned to the rendezvous feeling like a naughty child.' Conrad's buggy stood alone. Conrad was nowhere in sight, and no footprints led away from a nondescript gritstone outcrop. For a moment, Boaz feared something uncanny. Then he realized the obvious solution. Still consumed by naughty curiosity, he pulled the emergency release on Conrad's outer hatch. The buggy's life-support generator shifted into higher gear with a whine, but the illusion was too occupied to notice. He sat in the body-clasping driver's seat, eyes closed, head immobilized, his skull in the quivering grip of a cognitive scanner field. A compact flatbed scanner nestled in the passenger seat. Under its shimmering virtual dome lay some gritstone fragments. They didn't look anything special, but something about them roused memories. Ancient images... A historical controversy from before Mars was first settled. Boaz quietly maneuvered his bulk over to Conrad's impromptu virtual lab and studied the fragments carefully under magnification. He was profoundly shocked. What are you doing, Conrad? The Aleutian opened his eyes and took in the situation. The wise immortals stay at home. Immortals who mix with lesser beings are dangerous characters because they just don't care. Conrad was completely brazen. What does it look like? I'm digitizing pretty Martians for my scrapbook. You aren't digitizing anything. You have taken biotic traces from an unmapped site. You are translating them into information space code with the intent of removing them from Mars hidden in your consciousness. That is absolutely illegal. Now oh, grow up. It's a scam. I'm not kidnapping Martian babies. I'm not even kidnapping ancient fossilized bacteria. Just scraps of plain old rock. But fools will pay wonderfully high prices for them. "'Where's the harm?' "'You have no shame, but this time you've gone too far. "'You are not a collector. You're a common thief, and I shall turn you in.' "'I don't think so, Reverend. "'We logged out as partners today, didn't we? "'And you are known as an avid collector.' "'Give me credit. I tried to get you to leave me alone, but you wouldn't. "'Now it's just too bad.' "'Boaz's nostril slits flared wide.' His gullet opened in a bluish gape of rage. He controlled himself, struggling to maintain dignity. "'I'll make my own way back,' he resumed his helmet. Before long, his anger cooled. He recognized his own ignoble impulse to spy on a fellow collector. He recognized that perhaps Conrad's crime was not truly wicked, just very, very naughty.' Nevertheless, those controversial biotic traces were sacred. The nerve of that young Aleutian, assuming that Boaz would be so afraid of being smeared in an unholy scandal he would make no report. When this got out, what would the Archbishop think? Yet, what if he did keep quiet? Conrad had come to Butterscotch with a plan. No doubt he had ways of fooling the neurological scanners at the spaceport. If Conrad wasn't going to get caught and nobody was going to be injured, what should he do? That which waits at the gates was taking shape in an empty chair. It waits for those who deny good and evil and separates them from the void forever. He could not think clearly. Conrad's shameless behavior became confused
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: The nightmares, the disturbed sleep and uneasy wakening. Those marks on the wall of the inner courtyard. He must have room. He could not bear this crowded confinement. He stopped the buggy, checked his gear and disembarked. The sky of Mars arced above him, the slightly fish-eyed horizon giving it a bulging look, like the whitish cornea of a great, blind eye. Dust suffused the view through his visor with streaks of blood. He was in an eroded crater, which could be a dangerous feature, but no warnings had flashed up, and the buggy wasn't settling. He stepped down. His boots found crust in a few centimeters. Gastropods crept about— in the distance he could see a convocation of trucks. He was back in the mining fields. He watched a small machine as it climbed a stromatolite spire and defecated on the summit. Inside that spoil tower, in the moisture and chemical warmth of the chewed waste, the real precursors were at work. All over the mining regions, stromatolites were spilling out oxygen. Some day there would be complex life here, in unknown forms. The Martians were bringing a new biosphere to birth from native organic chemistry alone. Absurd superstition. Absurd patience. It made one wonder if the settlers really wanted to change their cold, unforgiving desert world. A shadow flicked across his view. Alarmed, he checked the sky. Fast-moving clouds meant a storm. But the sky was cloudless. The declining sun cast a rosy, tourist brochure glow over the landscape. Movement again, in the corner of his eye. Boaz spun around, a maneuver that almost felled him, and saw a naked biped figure with a smooth head and disturbingly spindly limbs standing a few meters away, almost invisible against the tawny ground. It seemed to look straight at him, but the face was featureless. The eyeless gaze was not hostile. The impossible creature seemed to Boaz like a shadow, Cast by the future, a folk tale, waiting for the babies who would run around the Martian countryside and believe in it a little and be happily frightened. Perhaps I've been afraid of nothing, thought Boaz, hopefully. After all, what did it do, the horrid thing I almost saw in that chair? It reached out to me, perhaps quite harmlessly. But there was something wrong. The eyeless figure trembled, folded down, and vanished like spilled water. Now he saw that the whole crater was stirring. Under the surface, shadow creatures were fleeing, limbs flashing in the dust that was their habitat. Something had terrified them. Not Boaz. The thing behind him. It had hunted him down and found him here, far from all help. Slowly, dreadfully slowly... He turned. He saw what was there. He tried to speak. He tried to pray. But the holy words were meaningless, and horror seized his mind. His buggy had vanished. The beacon on his chest refused to respond to his hammering. He ran in circles, tawny devils rising in coils from around his feet. He was lost. He would die, and then it would devour him. Hours later, young Conrad, struck by an uncharacteristic fit of responsibility, came searching for the old fellow, tracking his suit beacon. Night had fallen, deathly cold. The high priest crouched in a shallow gully, close to the crater where Conrad had spotted his deserted buggy. His suit, scratched and scarred as if something had been trying to tear it off him. "'his parched, gaping screams locked inside his helmet. "'The high priest struggled free from troubling dreams "'and was bewildered to find his friend the Illusion "'curled informally on the floor beside his bed. "Hallo," said Conrad, sitting up. "'I detect the light of reason. "'Are you with us again, Reverend?' "'What are you doing in my room?' "'Do you remember anything?' How we brought you in? Um, overdid it a little, didn't I? Oxygen starvation panic attack. Thanks for that, Conrad. Most grateful. Must get some breakfast. Excuse me? We need to talk. Boaz drew his massive head down into his neck folds, the shat gesture that stood for refusal, but also submission. I'm not going to tell anyone. I knew you'd see sense. No, this is about something serious. We'll talk this evening. You must be starving, and you need to rest. Boaz checked his eyeball screen and found that he had lost a day and a night. He ate, rehydrated his hide, and retired to bed again. To reflect... The mighty void had a place for certain psychic phenomena, but he had no explanation for a ghost with teeth and claws, a bodiless thing that could rend carbon fiber. In a state between dream and waking, he trudged again the chance avenue of stromatolites. Vapor hung in the thin air. The spindly towers bent their heads in menace. Isabel Jewell's module waited for him. "'so charged with fear and dread "'it was like a ripe fruit about to burst. "'The miners and their families were subdued to-night. "'The sound of their merry-making was a dull murmur "'in the private lounge where Boaz and the Aleutian met. "'The residence bar steward arranged a nested trolley "'of drinks and snacks and left them alone. "'Boaz offered his snifter case, but the Aleutian declined. "'We need to talk.' he reminded the old priest about isabel jewel i thought we were going to discuss my scare in the desert we are strengthened by his reflections Boaz summoned up an indignant growl i can't discuss my parishioner with you absolutely not before we managed to drug you to sleep said conrad firmly you were babbling "'telling us a horrible, uncanny story. "'You went into detail. "'You weren't speaking English, "'but I'm afraid Jarl understood you pretty well. "'Don't worry, he'll be discreet. "'The locals don't meddle with Isabel Jewell. Jarl the station manager. "'Sensible type for a human. "'You met him the other day in your courtyard, I believe, "'looking at some nasty marks on the wall?' The Shet's mighty head sank between his shoulders. Ah, um, in my delirium, what sort of thing did I say? Plenty. Conrad leaned close and spoke in silence, a form of telepathy the immortals only practiced amongst themselves or with the rare mortals who could defend themselves against its power. My friend, you must listen to me. What we share will not leave this room. "'You're in great danger, and I think you know it.' "'The old priest shuddered and surrendered. "'You underestimate me and my calling. "'I am not in danger.' "'We'll see about that. "'Tell me, Boaz, what is a bear?' "'I have no idea,' said the old priest, mystified. "'I thought not. "'A bear?' Is a wild creature native to Earth. Big, shaggy, fierce. Rather frightening. Here, catch. Inexplicably, the Aleutian tossed a drinking beaker straight at Boaz, who had to react swiftly to avoid being smacked in the face. Tentacles, said Conrad. I don't think you find them disgusting, do you? It's an evolutionary quirk. Your people absorbed some wiggly armed ocean creatures into your body plan eons ago. "'and they became your delicates. "'Yet, what you saw in Isabel Jewel's module was "'a bear with tentacles, and it filled you with horror, "'just as if you were a human "'with an innate terror of snaky-looking things.' "'Boaz set the beaker down. "'What of it? I don't know what you're getting at. "'That vision, however I came by it, was merely a nightmare. "'In the material world, I have visited her once— and saw nothing at all strange. A nightmare, hmm? And what if we are dealing with someone whose nightmares can roam around, hunt you down, and tear you apart? Boaz noticed that his pressure suit was hanging on the wall. The slashes and gouges were healing over, a little late for the occupant had the attacker persisted. He vaguely remembered them taking it off him, exclaiming in horrified amazement. "'Tear me apart!' "'Nonsense. I was hysterical, I freely admit. "'I suppose I must have ruled about over some sharp rocks.' "'The Aleutian's black eyes were implacable. "'I suppose I'd better start at the beginning. "'I was intrigued by the scraps you read out from Isabel Jewel's file. "'Somebody suspected of insanity. "'That's a very grim suspicion in a certain context.' When I saw how changed and disturbed you were after your parish visit, I instructed my Speranza agent to see what it could dig up about an Isabel Jewel, lately settled on Mars. You had no authority to do that. Why not? Everything I'm going to tell you is in the public domain. All my agent had to do was make the connection, which is buried but easy to exhume, between Isabel Jewel and a human called Ilia Markham who was involved in a transit disaster some thirty or so standard years ago. A starship, called the Golden Bow, belonging to a company called the World State Line, left Speranza on a scheduled transit to the blue Taurus port. Her passengers arrived safely. The eight members of the active complement, I mean the crew, did not... Five of them had vanished, two were hideously dead. The navigator survived, despite horrific injuries, long enough to claim they'd been murdered. Someone had smuggled an appalling monster on board and turned it loose in the active complement's quarters. There were chairs, meant for humans, around the walls of the lounge. The Aleutian and the chet preferred a cushioned recess in the floor, Boaz noticed that he no longer needed to look behind him. That phase was over. There are no black box records to consult after a transit disaster, the Aleutian went on. Nothing can be known about the false duration period. The crew construct a pseudo-reality for themselves as they guide the ship through that interval when time does not pass, which vanishes like a dream. "'But the navigator's accusation was taken seriously. "'There was an inquiry, and suspicion fell on Ilya Markham, a dealer in antiques. "'Her trip out to Speranza had been her first transit. "'On the return journey, she insisted on staying awake, "'citing a mental allergy to the virtual entertainment. "'A phobia, I think humans call it. "'As you probably know, this meant that she joined the active complement "'in their pseudo-reality quarters.' Yet she was unharmed. She remembered nothing, but she was charged with involuntary criminal insanity on neurological evidence. Transit disasters were infrequent since the new Aleutian ships had come into service, but Boaz knew of them, and he had heard that casualties whose injuries were not physical were very cruelly treated on Earth. What a terrible story. Was there a... "'Did the inquiry suggest any reason why the poor woman's mind "'might have generated something so monstrous?' "'I see you do know what I'm getting at,' remarked Conrad with a sharp look. "'The old priest's head sank obstinately further, and he made no comment. "'Yes, there was something. "'In her youth, Markham had been an indentured servant, "'the concubine of a rich collector with a nasty reputation.' When he died, she inherited his treasures, and there were strong rumours she'd helped him on his way. The prosecution didn't accuse her of murder. They just held that she'd been carrying a burden of unresolved trauma, and the active compliment had paid the price. Eight of them, muttered Boaz, and one more. Yes, yes, I see. The world state line was the real guilty party. They'd allowed her to travel awake. But it was Ilya Markham who was consigned for life, on suspicion she was never charged, to a secure hospital, just in case she still possessed the powers that had been thrust on her by the terrible energies of the Buonarrati Taurus. Was there, a Was there... uh, Any identifying mark of her status? Uh, There would be a tattoo... "'a string of symbols on her forearm, reverend. "'You told us in your delirium that you'd seen similar marks.' "'Go on,' rumbled Boaz. "'Get to the end of it.' "'Many years later, there was a review of doubtful criminal insanity cases. "'Elia Markham was one of those released. "'She was given a new name and shipped off to Mars with all her assets.' They were still a little afraid of her, it seems, although her cognitive scans were normal. They didn't want her or anything she possessed. There's no Buonarroti Taurus in Mars orbit. I suppose that was the reasoning. The old priest was silent, the folds of hide over his eyes furrowed deep. Then his brow relaxed, and he seemed to give himself a shake. This has been most enlightening, Conrad. I am... In a sense, much too relieved. You no longer believed you're being pursued by aggressive rocks? Harassed by imaginary ancient Martians? You understand that? Barbaric, though it seems, your old madwoman probably should have stayed in that secure hospital. I don't admit that at all. In my long experience, this is not the first time I've met what are known as psychic phenomena. I have known effective premonitions, warning dreams, instances of telepathy. This haunting I have suffered, this vivid way I have shared Isabel Jewel's mental distress, will be very helpful when I talk to her again. I do not believe in the horrible idea of criminal insanity. The unfortunate few who have been driven insane by a transit disaster are a danger only to themselves. I felt the same but your recent experiences have shaken my common sense. The Aleutian reached to take a snifter and paused in the act, his nasal flaring in alarm. Boaz, dear fellow, stay away from her. You'll be safe and the effects will fade if you stay away. Boaz looked at the ruined pressure suit. Yet I was not injured, he murmured. I was only frightened. Now for my side of the story. I am a priest, and the woman is dying. It's her heart, I think, and I don't think she has long. She is in mental agony, as people sometimes are, quite without need if they believe they have lived an evil life. Not in fear of death, but of what may come after. I can help her, and it is my duty. After all, "'We are nowhere near a Taurus.' "'The Aleutian stared at him, "'no longer seeming at all a mischievous adolescent. "'The old priest felt buffeted by the immortal's stronger will, "'but he stood firm. "'There are wrongs nobody can put right,' said Conrad urgently. "'The universe is more pitiless than you know. "'Don't go back.' "'I must.' "'Boaz rose ponderously.' "'He patted the Aleutian's sloping shoulder "'with the sensitive tips of his right-hand delicates. "'I think I'll turn in. Good night.' "'Boaz had been puzzled by the human woman's insistence "'that he should return in ten days, in the evening, at the full moon. "'The little moons of Mars zipped around too fast "'for their cycles to be significant. "'He had looked up the Concordance— "'Earth's calendar was still important to the colony— "'and wondered if the related date on earth had been important to her in the past. "'By the time he left his jitney in the lonely outskirts of Butterscotch, "'he thought of another explanation. "'People who know they are dying, closely attuned to their failing bodies, "'may know better than any doctor when the end will come. "'She believes she will die tonight,' he thought. "'And she doesn't want to die alone.' "'He quickened his pace,' and then turned to look back, not impelled by menace, but simply to reassure himself that the Jitney hadn't taken itself off. He could not see the tiny lights of butterscotch. The vapors and the swift twilight had caused a strange effect, a mirage of great black hills or mountains spread along the horizon, purple woods like storm clouds crowded at their base and down from the hills came a pale winding road there appeared to be a group of figures moving on it descending swiftly the mirage shifted the perspective changed and boaz was now among the hills black walls stood on either side of the gray road the figures rushed towards him from a vanishing point, from an infinite distance, at impossible speed. He tried to count them, but they were moving too fast. He realised, astonished, that he was going to be trampled, and even as he formulated that thought they were upon him. They rushed over him, and were swallowed in a greater darkness that swallowed Boaz, too. He was buried, engulfed, overwhelmed by a foul stench and a frightful, suffocating pressure. He struggled, as if trying to rise from very deep water, and then the pressure was gone. He had fallen on his face. He picked himself up with difficulty and checked himself and his gear for damage. The dead do not walk, he muttered, absurd superstition. But the grumbling tone became a prayer, and he could hear his own voice shake as he recited the consolation. There is no punishment. There is only the void, embracing all, accepting all. The monsters at the gates are illusion. There are no realms beyond death. We shall not be devoured. The void is gentle. The mirage had dissipated, but the vapors had not. He was positively walking through a fog, and each step was a mysterious struggle, as if he were wading through a fierce running tide. "'Here I am for the third time,' he told himself, encouragingly, and then remembered that the second visit had been in a nightmare. A horror went through him. Was he dreaming now? Perhaps the thought should have been comforting— "'but it was very frightening indeed. "'And then someone coughed, or choked, "'not behind him, but close beside him, "'invisible in the fog. "'Startled, he upped his head and shoulder lights. "'Is anybody there?' "'The lights only increased his confusion, "'making a kind of glory on the mist around him. "'His own shadow was very close,' Oversized, an optical illusion gave it strange proportions. A distinct neck, a narrow waist, a skeletal thinness. It turned. He saw the thing he had seen in the desert. A human male, with small eyes, close set, a jutting nose, lined cheeks, and a look of such utter malevolence it stopped Boaz's blood. Its lower jaw dropped it had far too many teeth and a terrible appallingly wide gape it raised its jagged claws and reared towards him boaz screamed into his breather the monster rushed over him swamped him and was gone it was over he was alone shaken in body and soul the pinpricked lights of the town had reappeared behind him. Ahead was that avenue of teetering stromatolites. Horrible mirage, he announced, trying to convince himself. He was breathing in gasps. The outer lock of the old woman's module stood open, as if she had seen him coming. The inner lock was shut. He opened it, praying that he would find her still Alive? Alive? and sharing with him, by some mystery, the nightmare visions of her needless distress that he knew he could conquer. The chairs had moved. They were grouped in a circle around the stove in the center of the room. He counted. Yes, he had remembered rightly. There were eight. The old, mad, human woman sat in her own chair, withered like a crumpled shell, her features still contorted in pain and terror. He could see that she had been dead for some time. The ninth chair was drawn up close to hers. Boaz saw the impression of a human body, printed in the dented cushions of the back and seat. It had been here. The fallen jaw Too many teeth. Had it devoured her? Was it sated now? And the others, its victims from the golden bough. What was their fate? To dwell within that horror forever? He would never know what was real and what was not. He only knew that he had come too late for Isabel Jewel. He could not think of her as Ilya Markham. She had gone to join her company or they, had come to fetch her. Conrad and the manager of the old station arrived about an hour later, summoned by the priest's alarm call. Yarl, who doubled as the town's community police officer, called the ambulance team to take away the woman's remains and began to make the forensic record, a formality required after any sudden death. Conrad tried to get Boise to tell him what had happened. "'I have had a fall,' Was all the old priest would say. I have had a bad fall. Boaz returned to Opportunity, where his residence had been successfully decoded. He was in poor health for a while. By the time he'd recovered, Conrad the Aleutian had long moved on to other schemes. But Boaz stayed on Mars. "'His pleasant retirement on Shet indefinitely postponed, "'although he had tendered his resignation to the archbishop "'as soon as he could rise from his bed. "'Later he would tell people that the death of an unfortunate woman, "'once involved in a transit disaster, "'had convinced him that there is an afterlife. "'The Martians, being human, "'were puzzled that the good-hearted old alien "'seemed to find this so distressing.'
2: There you go, don't forget. Copy is copyright is Gwyneth Jones. I'll put a link on to Gwyneth's site. I'll also put a link on if you're you know, interested in that Eclipse Four New Science Fiction. It's over there, but there's a link on to that. And there'll be a link on there to Goldine's site as well. Goldine, thank you very much. Next up is our David Raikland, Movie Soundtracks. David! Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack.
5: This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction, music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raikland. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the starship. Hi, everybody. Great news today. I've been working on a secret science fiction project with some of the best sci-fi minds on the planet. Doug Drexler, Oscar and Emmy winner for Battlestar Galactica. Mark Zickrey, nominated for Hugo and Nebula Awards for Star Trek World Enough in Time. Check out our new Kickstarter campaign for the 21st century reimagining of Space Patrol. Make sci-fi history and win a spaceship. We're making this for you. We're going directly to the fans. Kickstarter Space Patrol. Hope you're ready for a quick trip through time. We're going to survey almost 800 episodes over six decades with 11 different lead actors and at least that many different composers and musical styles, a show that's won Hugo Awards, BAFTA Awards, it's the longest-running science fiction series of them all, and it stars our favorite Time Lord, Doctor Who. This series is going to be impossible to summarize. It's a cornucopia of musical styles, but we can hit some high points, including the early theme song with its experimental electronica up to the 2012 symphonic orchestral version. You'll even get a sense of the evolution of all of science fiction music since as the show changed over time, so did the soundtrack we will focus on two of the major composers for the series. Delia Derbyshire, from the original Doctor Who. She not only arranged and performed the theme song, but she also, underscored, wrote the uh, music for the individual episodes. And Murray Gold, the composer for the current 2012 series. Now, Delia is quite remarkable. Not only is she a brilliant sound designer and composer, but she's also one of the very few women in the history of film and television music to become a composer uh, on a major series. Her work is very distinctive and took tremendous patience and skill because they didn't have synthesizers as we know them today or even as they were known back in the 80s. In the 1960s, you basically had to build all the parts yourself and play things one note at a time and kind of gently edit them together so it flowed like a natural composition. Kind of like the early days of video games, it was very difficult technically to do it well. And yet this song actually sounds quite natural and flowing, and uh, being heavily electronic, it's a little bit reminiscent of the scores of the uh, 1950s science fiction and horror movies, Um, especially thinking back to the day the Earth stood still and its revolutionary introduction of electronic scoring in science fiction. And this is the natural evolution of it to 1963. Here is an excerpt from the original Doctor Who theme. Catchy Tune is by Ron Grainer, and when he heard Delia's unique arrangement and performance, he said, did I really write all those notes? And in a sense he did, but in a sense she transformed them into an iconic theme song that's continued to be the backbone of the series' introduction, and even some of the underscore, through all of the incarnations of Doctor Who. Let's hear how the theme song evolved in the 1970s, and then we'll follow that by the 1980s. versions of the Doctor Who theme song, one from the 70s, when Tom Baker was the Doctor Who, and one from the 1980s. I think it's amazing how you can hear the evolution of music electronics just by following the evolution of the Doctor Who theme song. All of these are based on the original theme song by Ron Grainer and Delia Derbyshire. Now let's take a listen to the Doctor Who theme in its current version by Murray Gold. And here we get the first major departure, where before the theme song comes in as we know it, it's got a big live orchestral introduction. Now let's hear some scoring from an episode from 1970 called Inferno, with music by the Derbyshire, Blue Veils and Golden Sands. This has a remarkable electronic vibe to it that just says science fiction. Blue Veils and Golden Sands, written and performed by Didier Derbyshire. It's time for the first Doctor Who movie, which actually starred Peter Cushing and came out in uh, 1965. And it was called Doctor Who and the Daleks, and it was uh, followed by a sequel, uh, Daleks Invasion Earth 2150. The first film was scored by Malcolm Lockyer, and we're going to hear something that's clearly influenced by the very popular John Barry, James Bond scores. And it's a little trip into uh, classic scoring, fanfare and opening titles. Countdown stops, and before that, fanfare and opening titles from Doctor Who and the Daleks. Music by Malcolm Lockyer. Now let's move from the 60s movie to the 21st century Doctor Who television series and music by Murray Gold. Murray has been the Doctor Who composer since 2005 and has created the soundtrack along with his sound designer and orchestrator for all of the six current series. We're going to listen to some pretty recent music from Doctor Who, starting with the Impossible Astronaut slash Day of the Moon two-parter, where Doctor Who ends up in the Wild West of America, and we have I Am the Doctor of Utah. This is music that combines uh, rock and roll, country western, epic uh, operatic style music, uh, electronics. It's written by a gentleman from England. It's played by an orchestra in Wales. It really shows how music filmmaking has become an international production. Here it is. I am the doctor in Utah. In Utah, music of Murray Gold. Now let's turn to an episode where they travel through time. Back to World War II and Let's Kill Hitler. We're going to hear a cue where the large orchestra in dark, dramatic, operatic chords truly evokes terror of the Reich. <laughs> Let's hear from Murray Gold himself on the process of writing music for Doctor Who.
6: I don't think I ever knew it was going to be so much music. Just got the first episode and did that, and then did the second episode, and it slowly dawned on me that they were going to want music all the way through. So By the time I got to the end of the first series, I'd written quite a lot. Nobody ever asked for, for there to be character themes. It, it just seemed, um, as series one was developing, there was a little tune for the Doctor, and then by episode two there was a little tune that seemed to be about Rose, and, and then it seemed like if those two characters were going to have themes, it would seem a shame to leave every, everybody else out. It, it does sometimes create a problem when I want to use. I've run out of music, and I need to use. And this piece of music, piece of music fits exactly in a place. When it's, but it's not that character. I'm like, oh god, will anyone notice? Yes, they will. Of course, they will. Well, how can I suggest that they're connected? Probably Ennio and Morricone and. Danny Elfman and then David Bowie you know just they're all very melodic and sort of Danny Elfman's idea of a gothic sort of orchestra in Batman in 87 I think it was um, that was a really good sound and then his fantasy stuff and then I sort, uh, sort of I admire Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldsmith a lot as well I mean as, as composers I'm not sure that that they've percolated through. They're more complex in a way. Um, but I love Ennio Morricone.
5: That was Murray Gold on writing music for Doctor Who. Let's finish up with 1969, featuring vocals by Mae McKenna. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Connect on Facebook and see what we're up to next. D A V I D dot R A I K L E N. Contact me, David Rakeland, at Cinematic Music One at gmail.com be sure to check out my blog at www.davidraiklen.com music and interviews copyright their respective owners
2: there you go David I just love this little section it's excellent thank you so much so now we come on to first chapters and it's by Jeff Lane. It's called One Way. Jeff Lane, as you know, a, a talented narrator, a talented writer as well. Jeff's done a few narrations for Starship. These last one kind of we, we know was the three part Cory Doctoral, which kicked off this year's Starship's over, at the beginning of the year. Jeff's got a couple of books out. And this story is, it's an e-book and it's currently available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Smash Words. It's round about £3.99 or £2.64 in pound-pence, shillings and pence, £3.90 or $3.99. Give me a little blurb, this is what's on the, the cover of the book. Barry Griffith doesn't know yet, but tonight is the night fate has chosen to be the night of his death, his murder. At a gas station in the middle of nowhere... Late at night, his wife Jenny appears, no car, no coat, and looking older than when he last saw her. That's because this is not the woman he received a goodbye kiss from this morning. This woman has been a widow for over four years, and has made the impossible journey back in time to try and stop her husband's murder. Will they be able to escape the killers, or does fate only have one plan,
7: one possible outcome, one way? Chapter 1 The shovel dug without much vigor into the hardening and heavy pile of snow at the end of Barry Griffith's driveway. I should have shoveled this last night. A puff of steam accompanied each syllable of the self-admonishment. He had no idea that he was living inside what was to be his last 48 hours. He stepped back, leaned on the handle of his trusty snow shovel, and looked sourly at his nine-year-old Chevy Blazer. Barry was in a foul mood. The vehicle itself was good transportation and gave him very little trouble, but he wanted more. The Millers next door, for instance, they had more. They had their nice shiny new BMW and Jeep Cherokee parked in their driveway, neither of which was over two years old. A nice Jeep Grand Cherokee, or heck, since we're dreaming, an H3 was what Barry wanted to be shoveling a path for instead of his blazer. More. The mood he was in didn't have so much to do with vehicles as it did doing his bills. He plunged his shovel back in the snow pile, this time only about a third of the way down from the top. He wanted to get this done, but wanted his back to be intact afterwards. It seemed no matter how hard he tried, he just never seemed to have anything left over after the bills. He and Jenny were trying to save for the down payment on a house, but never seemed to get any closer to that dream. The house they were renting wasn't bad, but it wasn't theirs. More. He wanted more. After the shoveling came the cleaning off of the cars, which wasn't as heavy or taxing as the shoveling, but was still solitary, mind-numbing work, leaving Barry in his gray thoughts. When he stood back and looked at the mostly clear driveway and the newly excavated vehicles, he got back a little of his energy and a little reminder that his life wasn't all that bad. It was pretty good, actually. He looked at the rented house and could see Jenny sitting at the desk off to the side of the living room, working on her lesson plans or correcting papers. He loved her and she loved him. She was a beautiful person, inside and out, and was a dedicated teacher. What more could he ask for, right? Well, a little more. About eight to ten pounds more, actually. Barry and Jenny had always said they would have kids eventually, but wanted a little time to themselves as a married couple first. They both decided that getting into their own house was a prerequisite for kids, but lately Barry had begun to feel that time would never come. Barry shook his head, perturbed at himself again as he saw the little plops of snow outlining both cars on the freshly shoveled driveway. Growing up in Maine his whole life should have taught him a few things, like clean the cars, then shovel the driveway. But not Barry. Like a snowbound Sisyphus, he was doomed to repeat his snow removal mistakes again and again. After he was finishing up with the last few half-hearted tosses of snow onto the bank, he heard the phone chirp inside. Jenny got it halfway through the second ring. He thought he could almost hear her melodious voice drift out, even though the house was shut up tight, playing a losing defense against the cold. It was probably for her. It was never for him, bear It's your brother, she called out after a few minutes of chit-chat, Oh, okay, tell him I'll be right there, Simon Griffith. Now, there was someone who had more. He was Barry's older brother by three years, his only sibling, and he had the life Barry wanted. the house, yep, he had it, a nice one too. The kid, you betcha cute little blond boy named Aaron, the cars. Oh, let's not go there. He leaned the shovel against the side of the garage and headed for the house. Jenny was still chatting away and laughing with Simon. Barry was really appreciative of the fact that, even though Simon lived a few hundred miles away, they and their families had remained close. Here he is. See you, Simon. Tell Chloe I said hi. Jenny Griffith handed the phone to her husband. The look on her face did not match the friendly tone in her voice. Tell him no she mouthed to Barry and stomped back to her desk. "'What's happening, Big G?' Barry said as soon as the phone was in his hands. "'Nothing, little G. What's up with you?' Simon used the nicknames they had created more than a decade ago. "'Ah, just shoveling, doing the weekend chores, all that.' Barry knew that Simon hadn't called just a chat. In general, the Griffith brothers were not big phone talkers. If you were to get them in a living room or over dinner— The conversations would last for hours, but not the phone. Simon must have something to say. Cool. Hey, look, Chloe, Aaron, and I are coming up to see Mom and Dad next weekend. We probably won't have much time to catch up with you, but Chloe and I wanted to take Mom and Dad out for dinner. Would you be able to watch Aaron? Simon asked in his smooth, confident voice. Barry looked over at his own wife, who gave him a stern look and mouthed, No, again. Yeah, sure, we'd love to. Barry lifted his hands in a what-else-could-I-do gesture. Jenny shook her head and turned back to her schoolwork. Okay, we'll bring him around by probably three or four. Hey, what are you taking Mom and Dad out to dinner for? Oh, uh, well, we just had something we wanted to tell them, Simon's voice faltered. I knew it. I knew it. Barry laughed into the phone. Jenny's interest had been piqued from her perch in the corner. Knew what? Barry could practically see the sheepish grin on his brother's face. They could never keep secrets from each other. You guys are going to have another baby, aren't you? Don't tell Mom and Dad. We want to surprise them, and don't tell Chloe that you know. She'll kill me for letting the cat out of the bag. Barry was really happy for his brother and sister-in-law, but still, the jealousy reared its head again. Here, his brother had the cutest two-year-old on the planet, and he was getting another one. He was getting... more. Okay, we'll act surprised when you guys spring it on us. Congratulations, man. That is really too cool. Barry ended the phone conversation with his brother and then turned to face the wrath of Jenny, who had wandered back into the kitchen toward the end of the conversation. Look, before you say anything, just... Barry started. I'm not going to say anything, Jenny interrupted. It's just that we work so hard during the week and then your brother and his wife pop up for a visit and pawn the kid off on us. I'd like to have dinner with your parents, too. Why can't we hire a sitter and all will go out to dinner? I just feel like they never call unless they want something. Jenny, first of all, don't say pawning off Aaron like he's some kind of thing. He's our nephew and he's growing up fast. I like the idea that we're going to get to spend some time with him. It'll be fun. Besides, they have exciting news to tell my parents. You can understand that, can't you? I can understand getting all excited about the first one, but the second, you just don't get as hyped up about. But whatever. Whatever you want, you get, as usual. I'll just have another weekend ruined. No big deal. Jenny turned her back on her husband and started to walk back toward the living room. Barry grabbed her around the waist from behind and playfully gave her a spin as he buried his face in her neck. Oh, boo-hoo! Woe is me! My life sucks! Barry teased her in a high-pitched voice, aware only on the edges that he was also mocking his own mood from a few minutes ago. Stop it, Bear. That's not going to work. I'm mad at you. Jenny struggled to get out of his arms, but her thrashes lacked conviction. Barry knew right where the tickly part of her neck was located, and he was using it to his full advantage. Oh, that's right, because I never get my way. I'm going to stay mad all day, Barry continued in his high-pitched voice. He knew he was winning her over. He also knew that he had consciously avoided a long shouting match by switching into his playful mood instead of continuing the debate. Oh, he could have let this one go on and show her all the things he does for her. But to what end? Saturday afternoon shouldn't be spent fighting. I'm going to go out and shovel a path to the woodshed, then I'll be done. You want to go out to a movie after? Barry asked as he released his beautiful bride. No, but you could run to the store and rent one. Maybe one of those stupid teeny bopper flicks? Stupid? Oh, you like those, admit it, Barry egged her on. Yeah, I do. And you like those stupid reality shows that you say you hate, but still never seem to miss. So there, she gave it back playfully. Maybe I don't need more, Barry thought, and then looked over at his pathetic 25-inch TV and DVD player. He would much rather be watching a 52-inch high-definition widescreen with a Blu-ray and surround sound. More. The next day in church, Barry found it hard to act surprised when his parents told him that Simon was coming up the following weekend. He hated to keep anything from his parents, even if it was a good surprise. He and his father leaned against the hood of his car, waiting for the womenfolk to finish up their own conversations with fellow parishioners. This had become a ritual ever since Barry could remember. So what time do you get out? Sam Griffith was a fit man, just a shade over fifty, though people wouldn't have guessed he was a day over forty. He ran a small landscaping business, which kept him lean, muscular, and tan, slash windburned. You'd have to look at a calendar to confirm which. When you looked up hard-working Maynor in the dictionary, it would be Sam Griffith's face you would see. Well, the shift ends at 11, and I can usually wrap up and hit the door by 11.30. Barry's responsibilities as a manager at Eastern Teleservices included managing the efforts of a small call center team. And then you have to drive all the way back from Augusta? His dad kicked his heel against one of the Blazers' tires. Barry knew what was coming next, the same thing his father had said a million times since he had gotten his license as a teenager. I just hate the thought of you driving that late. You don't get tired, do you? No, Dad, that's never bothered me, you know that. I just listened to the UFO Nuts on that radio show, and it's more than enough to keep me up. But still, that's got to be 40 miles at least, right? Sam pressed. Yeah, something like that. It was actually 48.2 miles door-to-door. Before the conversation could go any further, the Griffith women came strolling toward the car. Barry looked at the difference between the two women. Jenny had thick auburn hair and the kind, beautiful face of an angel. His mother was also beautiful with her ash-blonde hair that had managed to keep from getting any grays. Only her hairdresser knows for sure. "'That was quick,' Sam Griffith said, picking up his Bible from the hood of Barry's car." Are you sure there wasn't someone else in the building you could have talked to for a third time? I think the pastor is talking about making you a separate key to the church so you can lock up when you leave. The good-natured ribbing elicited smiles from everyone. This was the same banter that Barry had heard every Sunday after church, just another part of the ritual. Barry and Jenny were invited over to the Elder Griffiths for Sunday dinner, but declined because they were going to catch a matinee movie in Rockland. Movies were kind of a hobby for Barry and Jenny, Most of their friends knew to call them up and ask their opinion on recent releases before heading out to the show. Another sweet Sunday on the coast of Maine. The icky feeling of a Sunday evening before a work week was still a few hours from full potency, but still on the periphery on the cold but sunny afternoon. The shadow of death hanging over Barry was not detected in the least by any of the family.
2: Now, Jeff's kindly said as well, if, if anyone is keen on that, you know, one listener, you know, you first want to get it, give us a shout, Jeff will give away an, an ebook as well. So there you go. If you do like that and you, you know, want to get there before the crowd and get a free one, just drop us a first email that gets through, drop us it and I will send it over to Jeff, and Jeff will sort that out for you. So that is Starship Sofa 233. So the week we found out, Starship So has been nominated for a Hugo Award again, three years running. How, me, you know what I mean? When I say, mean, it's certainly wouldn't be there without you out there. You know, everyone that's helped on the show and everything like that. You know, thank you so much. It really does mean a lot to us. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
4: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Stortium Sofa. A battle procedure initiated. Shuttle set for us. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.